Hello again, everybody. I'm Michael Conniff, and this is The Accelerator with Michael Conniff. That's me, um, a podcast devoted to entrepreneurs, startups, founders, and their pursuit of funding through angels, VCs, uh, investors of all kinds, family offices. And it is with great pleasure this week that I welcome um, Travis Bruffy to the podcast. Welcome, Travis. Great to have you. Oh, the pleasure's all mine, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, I'm going to brag on you a little bit. So don't don't blush. Don't get embarrassed. So Travis, uh, and also we're going to talk some football because we're not. I, I can't even get to the the other stuff without it without asking you a couple things. So Travis um, was an all conference uh, uh, tackle. Played some tight end at Texas Tech. Played for Cliff Kingsbury, now the head coach of the Car Arizona Cardinals in the U.S. and played for. Played with Patrick Mahomes, who just uh, exited the playoffs in, in the U.S. as well uh, on the way to the Super Bowl. And uh, was captain of the team for two years there, which I think is amazing. And also something I put a lot of stock in is when somebody's all academic, uh, all conference, I think that's pretty cool. I once hired a person who was all um, Pac-12, and she turned out to be, her name was Vanessa Pierce. She turned out to be one of the best hires I ever made. So um, let's put it this way. You come well recommended, but tell us how you ended up in London with LIGO Partners uh, as a venture analyst in gaming, sports, and cannabis. Yes. Um, well, it's a journey. It's a heck of an introduction. It's a heck of an introduction. I appreciate that. And, um, you know, first and foremost, I was just surrounded by great people that just put you in the right place. And um, that's all it is. Like Co Coach Kingsbury, one of those people who just made sure – as soon as you rolled into campus, that uh, academics was a priority. He was actually an academic All-American himself. Ah. And I'm not sure a lot of people know this. Patrick Mahomes is also academic All-American. Um, you know, that was instilled upon us. So I didn't do anything else but follow the people that were before me um, in, in all aspects. But in terms of getting my way across the pond, um, that was a bit of a different journey. Um, after college, I was very fortunate to, uh, to get an opportunity to play football at the Green Bay Packers. Um, I didn't last very long, as a lot of people do, and the majority of people do get that chance. But um, immediately upon essentially getting getting uh, released, I, I went to a coffee shop after I dried my tears um, and uh, started sending out job applications. And the first person to get back to me was, uh, was LIGO Partners. And LIGO Partners is a, is a multifamily office based in Miami. Um, I didn't know what a multifamily office was. I didn't know anything about that, but I knew I wanted to work in, in the private markets um, based off of some previous experiences. And um, yeah, just started driving down, did my, the rest of my job application in, um, in Lexington, Kentucky um, at, a, at a Starbucks there and just kept driving down, hoping I got the interview. Very fortunate I got the interview and lived there for about six months. And then when we tried to do some UK operations, uh, wanted to open up a London office. I guess I was a shortlisted for that. and Been here ever since, about a year and a half. So you're in the UK now, a Chelsea soccer fan, uh, <laughs> which is you know, too bad because I'm a Manchester United fan, but we're going to let that pass. But did your heart break a little bit when you saw the Packers lose and then the, the Kansas City Chiefs with Patrick Mahomes lose? You know, at, at my heart broke a ton when, um, I guess, on both. Uh, but, you know, it's really regarding Pat. You know, Pat is absolutely unbelievable, um, tremendous guy as well. Um, can't pretend that we're, you know, we're, we're best of friends by any means. Um, you know, he was he was only there my my first two first year, actually. Um, but, you know, always rooting for him, always have rooted for him. But I think, you know, everyone's rooting for the Bengals now that the, that the, the Chiefs are out. So, you know, I'm glad that some stories, at least some Cinderella stories are still being facilitated. 
at Packers, though, that broke my heart, you know, especially, I'm not I'm sure a lot of people know the history between the 49ers and the Packers, but just two years ago, uh, you know, knocked them out of the um, another championship game. Um, there's a lot of bad blood between the two teams, so you hate to see it. Um, I remember when I was there, everyone was just circling the circling the 49ers on the schedule. So I know how much it hurt those guys to, to drop that one. But um, if I know anything about those guys, I just know, you know, the culture that's still in that locker room, they're going to bounce back. We're going to get to what you're doing now, but do do you miss it at all? Um, you know, what I don't miss is hitting people much bigger <laughs> than me uh, for, for a fraction. You yeah, for like, a fraction. You look like you've lost a lot of weight. You used to be a lot bigger, I'm guessing. Yeah, I've lost about a hundred pounds since oh I stopped playing. Um, and I, can't, well, I can't say I've done much more than just live like a normal person. Um, I was on a pretty interesting diet when I was playing, so um, I wasn't naturally big like a lot of people were. So I was trying to kind of make up for for some, I wouldn't say genetic shortcomings, but um, trying to to essentially outkick what God gave me. Um, so uh, you know, I'm just back to equilibrium now. But um, you know, it's it's it is a bit interesting. To, to kind of see, you know, I, I saw some pictures, you know, the, the new iOS updates that bring up those those past pictures. It says this year, a couple of days ago, or remember this trip? And I'm like, Jesus, <laughs> how did I, I need to tell you to buy two plane tickets a couple, a couple of years ago. <laughs> right, right. You're less of a bodyguard now, but, but look, look at, look at where you are. So let's talk about what you're doing now. First of all, tell us um, what LIGO Partners is. I, as I understand it, it's a, it's kind of a consortium of about um, brings together a consortium of 2,000 family offices. I was on a call, thanks to you, that had 500 family offices on a pitch call. Um, but the, tell us about the the, comp, the the core company itself. Yeah, the, com the company itself. So I guess it starts back to what our name is. So our name, LIGO, is actually a Latin word for bridge. Um, family office investing, at least as it pertains to alternative assets, has largely been dominated by, I guess, two two main factors that be fixed income type opportunities in the public markets, as well as um, you know your more more long term multifamily residential plays or even residential real estate holdings that kind of make up the majority of the portfolio. Um, what you, what you didn't hear me mention was uh, I think the most lucrative asset class in the private markets without any any sort of financial engineering behind it is direct access into venture type or off market tech deals. Um, because of, of the, you know, the managing partner as well as the principal uh, member of the family office, uh, Alec Andronikov, um, his, his background was more on the operational side. It's several success, successful exits in the media, um, media tech, you know, consumer-facing technologies type space. Um, he realized that premium that a family office can have on the cap table as an operator. Um, so when he exited, he realized, okay, why don't I just kind of bridge the two gaps, see the opportunity here, and use some of this pretty interesting deal flow that's uh, really only been inherent to a couple square, you know, square miles on Sand Hill Road uh, for for generations. Why don't I just democratize it a bit more and let this, you know, this this cash rich um, and also value add asset class of the family offices get more involved in this type of deal discussion? That's what LIGO started as. It was about, um, you know, it was probably kicked off in, in um, February of 2020 when we kind of unofficially launched, but. Really, when we got started getting the flow of things was, was around August of 2020. And uh, what we do is essentially curate um, some of the best deals that we saw that are off-market uh, type opportunities, backed by elite blue chip level VCs, and bring them to our family office network and say, hey, it's a direct allocation. If you're interested, we'll introduce you directly to the CEO. Um, we don't charge fees uh, for, for the investor. We essentially just say, hey, this is the opportunity. And you don't have to go through an SPV or a fund to do so. Now, um, I, I reached out to your boss to try to get him on the podcast, and he said, I'm too private. <laughs> I, can't, I can't talk. Um, so we appreciate your coming on. 
Um, and then I reached out to your company after the pitch that the pitches mm -hmm. that I saw, and I, I sent an email to my contact and I said, "Is it occurred to me I should ask? Is this confidential information, or is this information I can write about?" And he said, "It's confidential." So you keep things pretty close to the vest, um, which means we're not actually going to be able to talk about the pitches that I yes. saw at LIGO. But as as I understand it, you saw the pitches. Um, uh, in the in the sports and entertainment space at unicorn pitches, is that right? Did you see those? Uh, are, you, are you referring? First, I should kind of clarify on a point that you just mentioned. So, yes, you know, we are we are very private. One of the inherent with the family office space is the discretion that goes alongside it. Um, you know, I, I, we're okay to explain kind of our model and how we started, but into kind of the inner workings of everything, obviously, got to keep that kind of uh, um, on the confidential basis, but. Um, you know, I, I, can you clarify what your question was one more time? Uh, did you um, see the pitches um, uh, in the uh, unicorn event on online um, maybe two weeks ago? Were you? I, th I thought maybe no. you watch. Oh, you weren't. Okay. Not. So let's talk. Um, we'll talk about some of those companies in just a second. But let me ask you: sports, uh, gaming, sports, including esports, gaming. And cannabis, so it, it it sort of sounds like you have all the fun. Is that is that true, or is that an illusion? <laughs> um, it's well, you know, it's a lot of fun. I'd say the, the the founders that are in those spaces are definitely uh, probably having a lot more fun than we are. But um, just I think it's a bit of an it's an interesting type of space because sports doesn't necessarily just mean on the field. It's more of an access to either consumer or health data, um, and it's a creative way to get to the same end result. Gaming in itself is just another extension of either commerce um, um, or, or some sort of marketplace type technology. Um, but there's also tremendous, tremendous. You can also think about like the Roblox type model. You know, it's a, it's a creator. It facilitates creator type economies. It's, it's something that's really been very interesting. Um, and that's pretty that's obviously fun to look into and see the innovation there. And then we go into cannabis. You know, we don't actually invest um or we don't, we're not the, the, the right, I'd say we're not the right capital partner for, for like, you know, multi-state operations or true, you know, plant touching. We love to see the innovation on the derivatives or, or the, you know, throughout the supply chain, whether it be upstream, midstream or, or, or consumer touching type businesses. Um, you know, we, we love those types of things. But to answer your question, yeah, I'm having a blast. I mean, it's amazing. One might also, uh, something that I didn't mention, and it's not necessarily a big focus of ours, but it's a big per personal focus of mine, is the emerging markets is also what I cover for our firm. So I focus a, a huge portion of my time focused on sub-Saharan Africa, um, the Middle East, and then Southeast Asia as well. Wow. So so that's quite a portfolio. What is the common denominator or common characteristics of companies that you find attractive for LIGO partners? Well, um, well, I think it's more, it can be as esoteric as possible. Um, you know, I think you can be, if you're talking about what makes a good founder or a good company, it starts really back to what its roots are and what its intentions. I think the best companies start out solving smaller problems. Um, and when, when you solve the small problem, I think you honestly stumble into billion dollar solutions. Um, as opposed to going out there and trying to start this trillion dollar idea you're going, you're missing some of the smaller steps along the way. But in terms of what LIGO is looking for, again, that's a bit more about our thesis. So I'll have to be careful how I answer that. But I think it's more so just a development of such, you know, what we're talking about. Um, we, we, we really love, really love founders that are hitting kind of that international, that international scale um, that are looking to dominate not just their own, own market, but see opportunities outside, at least a either a certain demographic 
or a certain user base or is going to more omni-channel type approach, whether it be through users or revenue streams, because we understand where that what that point means into a startup. I don't think that's inherently meaning a lot of people will say, oh, I'm going to classify this stage as Series A or I'm a Series B investor. We really like to hit that. We're, 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 I don't know if this is not, this is definitely not something that the firm stands by, but I like to look at firms that are approaching an inflection point. Uh, I think everyone is, but I classify that with, with a bit more qualitative type metrics as opposed to quantitative or anything you can find on Excel's own spreadsheet. Um, it's really more so is, is what are they trying to do here in the next, you know, 12 months? And does that, does that, you know, have some sort of, of, um, I guess volatility and is that volatility with a probability of that being favorable? Um, I guess maybe that does go back more qualitative, but if you understand what I'm saying is more so understanding the nature of the founder, their vision and how well they'll execute it, as opposed to just looking at, a, um, you know, opportunities across a, a very standardized quantitative set of metrics. Uh, I think a lot of VCs end up find, finding ways to financially engineer a portfolio. I don't think that's the, the nature of venture. Describe um, what constitutes an inflection point for you. Mm. Well, I, I, it's the pure definition is anything that's kind of going to kind of, uh, um, I, I don't know if it's a deflect. I don't know if I've never heard the term deflection point, but I guess it'd be the exact opposite of, of anything that's uh, representing, you know, uh, compounded growth at any, any given sector, uh, much more so that than the, I guess that the previous metrics or the previous forecast would have anticipated. Or even if the forecasts are factoring it in, um, wherever that point is soft circled, there's some sort of external event causing, causing either significant upside or downside. Um, and those events are largely either unanticipated. I think the mo if, you, if anyone's budgeting or forecasting an inflection point, it's not a true inflection point. I think uh, really what you're, what you're looking for is opportunity there that can be seized, whether it could be captured. Uh, for instance, if, if I'm if I'm branching into um, from from a uh, um, you know a, a peer play software health tech, but I want to branch into the wearables spot, um, you know spot, and I'm targeting a one percent market share in 18 months, and I end up capturing two. We've hit an inflection point somewhere across the way because of some sort of marketing or customer acquisition strategy, and of course you get into the weeds to figure out where that happens. Um, so that's exactly what we're trying to look for, and I don't pretend to be the smartest person in the room to try and figure out when that will happen. It's more so just saying, hey, when do you, what are you expecting to do? What is the confidence that you can, you can actually um, convert on some of the plans, convert on, on some of the things that you're telling us here in diligence? Um, and then what is, what, is, what, what is also your risk tolerance as a founder? How much are, are you looking to generate more capital or, 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 or um, are you looking to kind of survive the cold winters? And I think it's also more, more so of a market discussion as opposed to just the founder. But again, it's, there's so many subjective and input, input qualities. It's more so a lot of it's gambling as well. Yeah, well, well. Speaking of gambling, I wanted to ask you about uh, gaming and and sort of defining gaming. Is is gaming um, primarily video games, um, or does it in your in your practice does it encompass gambling as well? Is it is it one or both? Uh, both for sure. Both for sure. Actually, um, you know, you start getting it's gambling as it pertains to gaming um, is is very. I'd say it's. People have a unnecessary amount of hesitancy around it, and largely a lot of it's because of some of the uh, legal restrictions behind gambling. So, for instance, if there's a, a company with that has a state operating license already set, or, or for instance, a Nevada operating license, well, there's there's a certain number of, of um, restrictions that come to fundraising after that. So, you know, it's, it's really difficult to sit directly on the cap table um, prior to a certain stage. For as if it's still in the private markets or still raising a private round, um, it's very tough for you to not get in through some sort of convertible vehicle or some sort of indirect vehicle um, to get in uh, just because there's a, there's a legal amount of requirements for you to invest directly into it. 
Um, I say that to say this is gaming oftentimes is, is, is a very guarded industry or sorry, gambling is a very guarded industry and hard to break, hard to get into um, because of the restrictions around it. Uh, that is not the case internationally. Internationally, it's much more open and definitely it makes up a huge portion of the market share of the overall gaming market. Um, but, you know, the dominant player there is esports. It's not just uh, content, uh, what content makes up a massive market, uh, point of it, but also how they're monetizing personal assets. So um, as these as these you know players and these talents there, esports athletes are you know going through the markets of NFTs, secondary sales of such can be included in those markets, and that makes it even that much more lucrative. So to answer your question, yes, it, it includes both markets. I think um, oftentimes people differentiate the two because of a, a certain you know legislative parameters, but it could be into the global scope. That both of them are you know uh, very uh, very significant when it comes to the macro share. It almost like it's almost like they should be separated. I mean, you can certainly make the argument. I mean, video game, the video gamer might be very, might and probably is very different from the gambler um, or the esports player. It might be, but then at the same time, like a, a, a Counter Strike Go player may be very different than a Fortnite player or a Call of Duty player. But at the same time, I think, I think gambling or gambling itself is uh, has a negative connotation. For, for instance, like sports booking is actually just an, you're you're enacting upon your own personal knowledge. Um, you know, is it is there a certain chance factor? Yes, but if you've seen the movie Moneyball, you know that you can boil down some sort of sports to to a, a model. And I think you know you you got to be able to you know give the the game. I don't know if you can call someone who's a professional you know uh, sports book or or sorry, an athlete, but but you can definitely you you respect their profession. There's just there's it's if you differentiate the two, they are still playing the game and they're also executing on a, a you know a certain skill set that they've developed. Um, so maybe differentiating the two may be easier for fundraising and, and, and uh, all that. But I do think they still are operating in the same market. Well, if you ever want to know about the analytics, sports analytic, analytics business pre-Moneyball, talk to me because I had a company in the 90s. <laughs> Did you? Wow. In fact, it just um, we talked about the NFL, but here's how long ago that was and how primitive it was. We marketed our company at the NFL Combine, which is when every team – comes to see all the college players and is mm -hmm. now a gigantic multimedia event. Everything's televised or a lot of it is. When when we went to the Combine in the 90s, we were the only external company there. There was not a single and, – and by the way, there was no media. There was no press there. It was mm -hmm. us and the teams, and that was it. So that just seems like dark ages, and I guess it was. <laughs> but let's talk about sports data a little bit. Um, you and I have talked before about how, and you have told me really that uh, how valuable uh, what you call human data is becoming. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can explain that for us. What what is human data in your view? Why is this becoming more and more important? Yeah, I just think there's a certain, especially as it pertains to wearables or things. You know, um, you even go to, you know, go into like things like Strava, um, or, or you know, I guess. Maybe that's the best example, but anything that's tracking performance is also is also tracking either human optimization or human health in a standardized format. I think maybe it is catering more so towards the people, you know, the percentage of people, and say like the 80th percentile of, of healthy human beings or people that actually care enough to to track the progression of their work. But that's still a very important demographic to understand. Um, you know, I, as we started seeing things, uh, you know, uh, you know, cases of 
I don't want this to turn into a, a Joe Rogan podcast by any means, but cases of things like comorbidity from uh, from vaccinations or from from even from things like COVID. Well, that was actually people weren't under, understanding that, and it looked to actually data from from some of these athletes that was almost I wouldn't say involuntarily, but was being submitted um, with without the intention of it going into some sort of macro study like this. So um, that there, it's a very valuable information, whether it's monetized on the front end or not. But when, whenever an athlete is, is, is you know, so willing and athletes are willing to submit that data because, you know, every 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 athlete will tell you the most important thing to track is either progress or progressive overload. You need to measure quantitative variables. And, um, you know, if I'm, if I can measure how fast I run, but I also want to measure how, how long my heart rate's in a certain position or um, the, the kinetic energy still stored in my quadriceps. You know, those are all things we can track now. Um, for an athlete's performance, but that also has human applications as well. It also has medical applications. Um, and as we as we pretend to understand the human body, um, the, the further we try to solve these problems that are um, within us. And I'm, again, I'm not a medical expert by any means, but you're becoming our eyes are opening more and more just how little we actually understand. Um, and, and all sorts of human data, as, as we figure out a way to create a perpetual stream of data coming out, coming in at all given times. And I, I think, um, you know, sports tech or, um, you know, wearables in general are just a, another asset to that kind of already um, massive market. Is the value and the opportunity in the, the hardware of the wearables or the data of the wearables or both? Um, well, that's a, that's a great question. So I'll tell you about a company that's dominated the market thus far is Whoop. Whoop is fantastic. You know, thank you, Whoop, very well. They have a great partnership with the NFL Players Association. I've enjoyed, you know, free Whoop membership for, for quite some time. But they actually don't charge, they don't charge you for the for the first, they don't charge you for the wearable. The, wearable. the device does not cost any money. They make all their money off of subscription. Um, so I guess in, in turn, you're paying a premium and paying it off over time, yes. But the value is in the data they're collecting. The value for the user is in the data that's being presented to you. The value is not the wearable. I mean, the only thing I would say, maybe like the Apple Watch, which has some sort of fashionable you know, side to it. Like if you look at the Fitbit, you know, they're not creating that for, for you know, uh, aesthetics. Uh, the same thing with like the Aura Ring. The Aura Ring is awesome. For people who don't know, it tracks your sleep. It's, uh, you know, one of the best investments. You can, I don't have any you know, investment into it or a relationship with them, but it's one of the most best investments you can make into your personal health is tracking your sleep. Aura Ring is fantastic. I think I need to get that. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. Trust me, it's awesome. They, they do it by far the the best best out there. There's a lot of sleep trackers. They're by far the best. Um, but they, you know, it's 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 bulky. It's you know, they want you to wear it all the time, but you're never going to wear it all the time. It's in the data for both the user and the company. Um, you know, how is that data being monetized? Of course, you know, you're paying a subscription agreement, and you know that's how the company is monetizing the user. But how is the data being monetized? Well, you know, they're not sitting on it. You know, I, I can't speak on behalf of any of these companies, but Logically, you know they're not just sitting with it to optimize internal performance. That makes no sense. They're not healthcare providers. They're not pharmaceutical companies. But the the healthcare you know uh, conglomerates, the the massive you know side of things that have you know done both good and bad for the American healthcare system are taking that data, hopefully with the intent of doing things good and targeting you know more either more better or better solutions or more effective outreach campaigns. Have you looked at Peloton? They've uh, undergone a nosedive. Um, uh, too much inventory. Stock price has really faltered um, during the pandemic. It was kind of the flavor of the month, it seemed. Mm -hmm. um, what's your take on that company? Um, on Peloton? Well, that's interesting. Um, I think Peloton, 
Peloton didn't anticipate. Well, I think Pan, Peloton either did one or two things. They either engineered the pandemic, which I think is very, very unlikely. And I should <laughs> probably probably say that's that, that probably go on record to say I'm just kidding there. Um, but they benefited from a lot of tailwinds. Um, you know, there are other competitors in the market, by the way, in at-home fitness. There's the Mirror, there's Orgata, all of which are great companies. But Peloton was really already kind of, I wouldn't say a household name, but a name in home fitness. Um, and also in a, a, had a streamlined, almost that, that, that kind of that white labeled entertainment platform as well. Um, mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think, you know, if you were to take, you know, the pandemic out of it, the gyms closing out of it on a global scale, if Peloton would have ever reached that market cap that, you know, everyone's saying that they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, that, that's it. I, I, don't, I, don't, I think that they hit that because of some, some you know, external variables. That's what, that's my personal opinion. Do I think it's a great product? Absolutely. Do I think it's a great company? Um, I think it's an interesting company. I don't think I would ever buy. And the reason why is saying um, anyone, it's easy to look at you're in a bubble in the past, but it's also very interesting to think that you're not in a bubble when there's a pandemic and all the gyms are closed. Therefore, that's the only thing increasing, you know, I guess increasing your top line is the fact that there is no other option. You've had an externally created monopoly. So pr- production, you know, therefore could have been forecasted to continue through. And I, again, I don't know the particulars about, you know, how they budgeted when these conversations took place. But, you know, if you if you essentially have, have, have set your production milestones to cater towards, you know, still people not wanting to go back to the gym at the same scale they weren't prior to during the pandemic, prior to the gyms even having an option or actual riders aren't going to want to get back on the roads at some point and feel that wind going through their hair. Um, well, then maybe you've made an error there and uh, the market is correcting that. It's a shame because Belton is very inventory heavy that there's a cash flow associated with that. It'd be much different. It's a pure play software. It was just a marketing loss they could write off. Um, but, you know, in terms of to answer your question more directly, what do I think of the company? I think it's fantastic. I think it got a lot of people in shape. I think it also did a lot for at-home fitness and it created a lot of people trying to fight for that market share. Um, you know, it's going to be, the, I think Peloton is more so like the Netscape um or or um maybe even the, the quote i wouldn't say that, i don't associate them with someone like uh yeah it's like the netscape like the first mover there or or but they're going to set up the, the pace for a lot more long-term players i think if they're the netscape then that's not very uh optim- very positive because well, it's not it's not negative either but the thing they moved first they dominated the market and they they, they essentially didn't do necessarily do anything terribly wrong um, they just essentially got displaced because of, uh, I think, more so external circumstances than anything they did internally. And that's without me looking at their p or looking at their income statement or anything like that. You gave me a great uh, metric here. It's like either you're the Netscape of an industry or if you're lucky, you're the Netflix of an industry. So, <laughs> yes. and it remains seen. Before I let you go, let me ask you about the emerging markets. So mm-hmm. um, tell us again which markets you cover and which ones you're most excited about and why? Well, it is in, um, I cover I cover Sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, and Southeast Asia, um, Middle East and Northern Africa as well, um, with with probably about 90% of my work in those emerging markets with a big focus on Western Africa. Um, Western Africa is, is comprised of at least who we look at is, is really three main countries, and that's Nigeria, Ghana, and Senegal. Um Really, we, we folk, I've had a big focus on Nigeria uh, for quite some time, and I'm very excited about Nigeria. And um, there are actually hundreds of people much more qualified to speak about what's happening in Nigerian tech all across the world. There are so many. So, like, there's a great podcast called the Afroability Podcast. I definitely recommend anyone to check out. Um, you know, it's, it's, there, there's 
um, companies there that are changing the world um, that we are we are not taking enough uh, a deeper look at. A lot of times people are viewing Western Africa in particular, associating with philanthropy, where there's definitely philanthropic work uh, that needs to be done in the country of, of Nigeria. But Google a picture right now of Lagos. Book a flight to Lagos. Go experience what actually what what, what this what the city what this country what is. Go to Abuja. Go to all these different metropolitan areas in the country. This is not what you think it is. Um, and all that to say this. The opportunity there is very interesting. Over 90% of the, this is one of the, this is the fastest growing middle class the country or the, the world has ever seen. It'll be the second biggest country in the world behind India by 20, uh, by 20, uh, 2100. And it might even get before that with the, with the current growth rate. But over 90% of their transactions take place over cash. That's why there's a big, big fintech revolution trying to digitize cash, um, for the past, you know, five, six, seven years. People like Paga, people like, um, even people like uh, uh, you know, Flutterwave and the transaction processing, things like that, are trying to trying to capture this market and trying to figure out a streamlined way for the Nigerian consumer, Western African consumer, to get their cash into a bank account. There's one or two reasons why. Is is one, of course, it makes things much more easy uh, to, to kind of create this interconnected web of, of, of fintech across the country once you digitize the cash. But also, if a country's going to become that big of a player on a global scale, you should probably understand the country, the consumer itself. You have no idea what these 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 voluntary survey surveys are doing. They're not doing any justice to represent the Nigerian population or the Western African population. I don't mean to loop those two in together. Of course, uh, most of what I'm saying now pertains to Nigeria exclusively, but can also be replicated in other markets as well. But focusing just on Nigeria. Um, if you don't have accurate accurate data to understand the country that will be making that many global moves, then then you're you're setting yourself up for failure. Um, I think everyone is relying on. Uh, there's been too much of a focus on to uh, on middle market exits within within Nigeria, and entrepreneurs within the country will tell you the exact same thing. Is that you know people the big giants over here in Silicon Valley are just waiting to let them everyone sort itself out um, in Nigeria, and they'll just acquire the players for their international expansion strategy. You know, Jack Dorsey went over there. And Mark Zuckerberg has been over there and, and, and saw that that is just not a, not a very that's not something that they can do. They can't afford it because the market caps just don't make sense. You're going to be spending, you know, a, a third to, to a quarter percent of your market cap just acquiring one of these companies by the time they hit scale. These populations and the propensity to spend and the technology adaptation here in these countries are absolutely incredible. And the opportunity there is infinite. The biggest the, the biggest headwind is, is currency risk. And I think that's being largely mitigated. One with the volatility of the USD, as well as international fiat currencies, kind of fluctuating regardless. Um, you know, there's opportunities there in terms of decentralized finance, which is already being. And not to mention, look, no, no offense to, to to American founders or anything, but a lot of what we're seeing in, in, in quote unquote the Western world is just revamped solutions of already streamlined processes. You know, last minute delivery services can get you pizza or or a toilet paper in 10 minutes as opposed to 15 minutes, right? But organic, we saw this in Latin America. We saw this in Brazil with the kind of the, the neo-banking revolution. Copy and paste that into what's happening in Nigeria. It's, it's a true infrastructural development, but it's not happening at ground zero. It's taking the same processes that have, that have worked and failed in the States, worked and failed in other markets across the world. And they're combining those solutions to create more uh, bespoke type products for the African consumer. Not to mention when, when you implement those types of products and the tech savviness and, and the fully integrated tech stuff they are producing with the already amazing and already fast growing consumer base, the opportunities are endless. Now, I don't know if the opportunities in terms of ex exits are as lucrative as, as, as you know, institutional investors would like. As a family office, I just don't, a family office or a high net worth individual or even an entrepreneur looking to change the world, I would I would point you right towards that, that Western African region and say, look, this is, not to mention, 
this is also not to mention the talent that exists there. The pure tech talent is second to none. It is absolutely second to none. You're seeing just truly amazing founders coming out of that region. And I've really, I've done, I've done almost all I can do to try and add exposure to them on a global scale and to you know, make my, make every, make it known to everyone that I am actively looking to one, personally invest into the region. Two, I want to take startups that, that need the international money. I want to put them on a platform so they can, they can reach the international scale. And so people stop viewing, uh, stop, stop, you know, viewing, uh, uh, you know, really African general through these sunglasses and they view it through what, what it really is. And it is, it is it's a hotbed for talent, hotbed for, for, for change. Um, and I'm just excited for hopefully the global narrative to shift in that favor. Well, by all means, uh, keep us informed and give us a heads up whenever you can, uh, whenever you can, don't have to keep something confidential. <laughs> well, I can hear your passion about it. Are you at all concerned about the political unrest in Africa? There have been five coups in the last 18 months. Now, not in these countries, but don't you... Uh, does that, I mean, I think I say that in the most macro, it's the most macro kind of fear because we know so little. It's just like, oh, do I need to, you know, in Ukraine, we know there are troops on the border. <laughs> you know, yeah. And troops on the border. They might come in. In Africa, it's just, you know, so far away psychologically, mentally. Um, do you worry about that in Africa, in the, in the, in the well, countries you're following? Yeah, I mean, not in the countries that I'm following. I think you know Nigeria is is very well, you know, I guess positioned to avoid something like that. Ghana as well. Um, you know, Senegal is is a very strong um, you know governmental system as well. You know, I know there's some there are definitely some uh, some you know critics out there that would argue otherwise. But in terms of the pure like you know, uh, I guess the volatility associated with more dictatorships, you know, we run into those issues. You know, but what you're asking is you know. There's there's been a huge influx of capital headed towards places like Hong Kong and, and Singapore in general, but you didn't see that uh, you didn't see valuations affected when there was a coup in Myanmar. Um, you also didn't see Stripe's valuation be impacted at all on January 6th of 2021. Um, you know, also not to mention there's four billion dollar neo banks based out of Brazil, and, and there's a pure dictator like that's in office right now in in, in Brazil. And you know, I, I, Bolsonaro, regardless of your political opinion, he is a, he is a, he's a dictator. Um, and so I, I think that we're also, you know, it's easy to say that from the outside looking in. The bigger risk is associated with with an action like that disrupting supply chain, which would then affect the currency, which brings back to my original point is there's huge currency risk. Um, another thing that's really interesting to, to point out is there's a very, it's a very, um, it's not a very interconnected market. So so you say, you know, there, there could be a, a coup in um for instance, uh, Rwanda or the Congo or one of the, you know, the countries that have experienced, you know, similar kind of unrest in the past two decades. There's not, it wouldn't necessarily affect supply chains and how wouldn't have a direct hit on someone like the, the Naira or someone like that there in Nigeria. It's a very decentralized um, economies. And one of the reasons also, I think, you know, if we're tailing it back, I think there's a huge opportunity there. And honestly, there's a huge movement to, I can't pretend to be the, the genesis of the idea. Um, of towards like a unionization of some of these African countries, you know, like the African Union modeled after the EU here on the European bloc. Mm -hmm. I don't think I don't see that happening within the next you know five to ten years because again, mentioning more so about political unrest, there's a lot of issues need to be solved there. Um, but no, to answer your question, I'm not necessarily um, I'm not necessarily concerned about that as it pertains to places like Nigeria. I'm more concerned with external factors. Um, and the, the lack of IP protection that Nigerian domiciled companies have. It's, it's very hard to protect your IP. And if there's a solution, you know, that's, that's essentially there's a moat around it in, in Nigeria with minimal funding, then someone can copy that, you know, 
domicile there in the UK, if you're in the UK, um, and then just have a you know satellite office there operating in Nigeria, or probably have a higher valuation and for very very unfortunate circumstances have a much you know have a what's considered a more credible team. And as long as that that consists is, is consistent and that persists in our markets, we're going to have it's going to be a very big issue. So I always encourage people to look directly on the continent for its solutions. Um, if there's a company that's operating in Africa and needs to have a booth in the ground office in Africa or at least ties there, um, and to to prevent kind of the the situation she explained from happening. Travis, you give us a lot of bang for the buck. Um, <laughs> appreciate it. Travis Ruffy is a venture analyst at LIGO Partners. Um, they're a collection of family offices that has an even bigger, I think I would describe it as a consortium of family offices. They do an amazing job, and I'm saying this firsthand. Um, I, I saw your pitches recently, um, and I think it was 82 culled down to eight pitches, curated down to eight pitches. And every every one of them seemed like um, a real winner. Um, I was really impressed. I was like, okay, until I see something better, this is kind of the gold standard of pitches. Um, very high level, um, incredible teams um, looking looking for the money. Investors already in the deal, in in all cases. So it was it was really impressive, and I I commend you for that. Most of all, I commend you for. Uh, Finding life after sports, life after football. Uh, uh, you're you're uh, physically 100 pounds lighter, but I think intellectually maybe you're ga gaining some weight. So uh, I don't know if I'd say <laughs> that. I don't know. I, I think we all should be gaining weight up there, if, uh, if or else we're just dying slowly. Yeah, upstairs. But listen, thanks so much for being with the accelerator, and uh, we hope to have you back again and to stay in touch with you, particularly about the. Um, uh, Nigerian sub-Saharan -Sub African markets and, and uh, your specialties of sports gaming and um, can and especially cannabis. Let's not let's not forget cannabis. But uh, great to see you and uh, thanks to everybody for listening to the Accelerator with Michael Conniff. That's me and uh, we'll be back before you know it. Thanks again. <laughs>